I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and today we have part one of a three-part series called Custom Fitting Your Bike to Your Body Size, the three areas of your bike that can and need to change to fit your body. We're going to walk through some crucial adjustments that should make your ride even better this year. Also, we're going to talk with a founder of a new online women resource designed to inspire women riders called Women ADV Rider Magazine. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Let's begin. Shall we begin? Oh, shall. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tuck. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeVell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, this is part one of a three-part series we call Custom Fitting Your Bike, the three areas of your bike that you can and need to change to fit your body. Now, if you think back to when you learned to drive a vehicle, very likely the first thing you were taught to do when you got into the driver's seat was to make the necessary adjustments to allow you to reach the controls and see properly. That would include, you know, sliding the seat forward or back, maybe up and down, maybe tilting the seat back for a good angle, adjusting the steering column if it was adjustable, the rear view mirrors, the side mirrors, basically to custom fit the car's cockpit or driver's area to your body size. Now, if you think about it, even when you jump in somebody's vehicle to move it, the first thing you do is adjust the seat. It's not really, not usually, that you can't reach the pedals of the steering wheel for the seat adjustment. It's to sort of fine-tune it a little bit to fit your body. Now, interestingly enough, when it comes to motorcycles, they're usually set up by the dealer. They arrive in a crate. They have someone assemble it. They put it on the showroom floor. Someone buys it and leaves. And the bike is never adjusted again for the life of the bike. 
let alone for that original buyer that bought it. I mean, when was the last time you bought a motorcycle where the dealer said, okay, let's get this custom fit to your body size. Now think about it. That's like getting on a tractor. You know, tractors I grew up operating didn't have any adjustments for the cockpit area. So you had to sort of learn how to make things work. You adapted your body to the tractor, the way you used it. You you adapted yourself to the controls. I learned how to reach far forward for the brake, um, how to shift my butt forward in the seat so I could shove the clutch in all the way. Basically, I was adapting my body position to the tractor. And you can imagine what that does for your actual control. A motorcycle, on the other hand, is similar to a car and has the adjustments there that are meant to make the bike fit to you, the ride not the other way around. For this three-part series, we have Grant Johnson, and Grant is the co-owner of Horizons Unlimited. He has extensive motorcycle background knowledge. He's a trained mechanic, an ex-motorcycle dealer, an ex-racer, a lifetime rider, as well as teaching motorcycle mechanics as a class for a number of years. But probably the most important thing is, Grant has been doing hundreds of demonstrations at the hub meets around the world, teaching riders how to make these necessary adjustments to custom fit their motorcycle to their bodies. And Grant is going to walk us through the adjustments for each one of these three areas in this three-part series. We're going to start with the cockpit area, then we're going to move to the pedals and the foot pegs, and then we're going to talk about seats. Now, doing this custom fitting for your bike, it's not difficult to do but we broke it into three sections so that we can take our time with it. You can listen to the first one. You can make your adjustments, go out and ride the bike for a bit and notice what those adjustments have done for you as far as comfort and the ergonomics. And then the following week, we move on to the next and then the next. So you might want to grab a pen and a paper to make some quick notes as we're going through this. You can always rewind, of course, and listen to it that way. But let's get our bike set up. Grant Johnson is the co-owner of Horizons Unlimited, which is sort of the de facto website for motorcycle travel connections and information that started back in, actually, what year was it that you and Susan started Horizons Unlimited? We were back in 1987 in Ushuaia, Argentina, just coming near the end of our around-the-world trip, and CompuServe sent us a message and said, you can have a website. And we said, what's a website? So pretty quickly, we figured it out, and our stories that we'd been sending home to our families from, uh, you know, in our emails, we put up on the website and headed for Antarctica. And by the time we got back, we had emails already asking us, what, how do you, how did you do this? How did you get into Tunisia? What do I need to know? And the website just has exploded since then. It's interesting because, you know, that was sort of the start of the internet when the internet was getting going. You don't find many websites that have been around that long. So I, I, I got to give you a, a round of applause for that one. It's amazing that you're, you're still around and you're still the sort of the biggest thing in this. You have a very strong mechanical background, which is why we are talking about this today. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I started off like most kids do, fixing my bicycle and got a job in a bicycle shop part-time after school and learned a few things there. And on my 16th birthday, I bought myself a motorcycle and very quickly started to play with that and fix it and keep it going. Of course, I had no money. He's trying to do what you can to keep it running. And it was a Ducati, so of course it needed lots of fixing. Um, <laughs> Which is really the and, way you learn the best, isn't it? When you don't have money, oh, you've got to fix it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, you also get yelled at by your mother a lot when you have crankcases in the oven and you're heating them up so you can take them apart and change bearings. She doesn't like that much. But anyway, um, from there I went to work in a uh, local Norton BSA Triumph shop and learned quite a bit there from a British journeyman mechanic. I was the apprentice and I learned the hard way from him that you will do it right or you will die. (laughs) 
<laughs> made sure I did it right. Um, from there, by the time I was 21, I owned my own motorcycle shop. I was selling Suzuki's and racing as well, of course, at the same time and learned a lot from that and just kept on being very focused on the mechanical aspect of bikes and I've always been interested in it. I do my own repairs. My BMW has to go into the local dealer to get the computer updated, but that's about it. The rest of it, I take care of myself. And you were doing courses at one point teaching people how to repair motorcycles? Yeah, I taught uh, motorcycle maintenance, a lot of the basic stuff, so that people could actually do their own. And that taught me a lot about teaching, which was really interesting. I did that when I was like 23. And I, I remember my first year doing that, I was terrible, world's worst teacher. <laughs> but uh, I learned. <laughs> I learned. And um, now doing all the stuff we do with the events that we run are all, all over the world. I think we're doing about 25 events this year. And we do a lot of courses there on how to do things. And uh, we learn a lot about teaching from that and the kind of problems that people have. You know, people always ask us, you know, what about this? What about that? Okay, so you learn. So I guess to start with, what is adjustable on the bike and what can we move to fit ourselves? There's a lot of things that are adjustable. Just starting with the handlebars, we can adjust the fore and aft angle, up and down heights. Uh, we can pull the bars back towards us using risers of some kind. We can move them forward. We can adjust the levers up and down. We can even adjust the amount of the levers come in towards the grip for different size hands. Uh, the mirrors can be adjusted and should be adjusted, and usually they're badly adjusted. Um, there's a lot of things that we can play with. Even angle of windscreen can make a difference. And, of course, there's also the, the, your feet and where your bum sits on the bike. We can adjust the seat height. We can adjust the seat cushion, adjust it so that you sit forward or aft. And your gear levers, your brake pedals, all that, and peg height can also be adjusted. It's all part of making all of it fit all of you. Maybe just before we get going, we should actually talk about um, the fact that some of these controls on motorcycles are pegged or pinned to the handlebar. Yeah. You, even with the ones that are pegged, the, very often the item that's pegged is the levers. And they are pegged, but there is still some small adjustment. And I think you'll find – well, we have to give the manufacturers some credit – if you have the handlebar set in the neutral position, the flat position, then the lever has probably got enough range of motion that for most people's height, you can get the lever in the correct position. If not, you can always slightly enlarge the hole. Why would they pin it? They're pinning it. Well, <laughs> that goes back to the 60s. Honda was sued in the 60s because somebody went for their brake and the brake lever had come loose and slipped down and it wasn't there. They were sued and they lost. So since then, a lot of manufacturers have been pegging levers to prevent that kind of issue, which is basically down to poor mechanics, poor maintenance, and the owner not paying any attention whatsoever to how the bike is working. Talking about pinning uh, controls, there are people who will actually take those off when they first get the bike and, and grind the pin off so that they have the flexibility if the bike goes down instead of breaking a lever, hopefully it moves something. Sure, you can do that. Of course, we're not going to say you should do that because there is legal issues there. Uh, but you can do it. It's your decision if you do it. I, I do my own. If I have a bike that's got pins, I pull the pins out for off-road riding, making sure that your levers aren't super tight. And if you do crash, they can rotate. I think it's a, it's a good thing. Whether you do it or not is a decision you have to make yourself. We've broken this into a three-part series here. We're going to have one part this week, and then we're going to continue them for the next two weeks after that until we've completed it. The first one is about the cockpit area. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's 
the main area where we start, where I like to start when we're trying to get a bike to fit somebody is, okay, sit in the bike. Now, this is your cockpit. This is where you start. And we want to get the neutral position right. And by neutral position, I mean the zero position or where you basically work. And if you're listening to this now, close your eyes and put your hands out in front of you. Okay? Now, open your eyes without moving your hands. And I'd be willing to bet that 99.9% of you have your hands more or less out at handlebar position and your hands are flat. That's a neutral position. That's where your body wants your arms to be and be comfortable. So we want the handlebars to fit in that neutral position. So the first thing I try and get is the handlebar grips absolutely level to the ground. So you may have to roll the bars forward a little bit and you have to roll them back a little bit, but get those grips dead level. That's neutral on your handlebars. Now, if you've got an issue or you've got a, a weird shoulder, something's bummed and something messed up, you may have to roll it forward or back a little bit, but only a very little bit. Start at the neutral position, and I find virtually everybody stays there once they get used to it. It may be different from where it is now, but get that neutral position started. Okay, so where do we start then with the cockpit area? What do we adjust first? First of all, get those handlebars right. You've got to get the handlebars dead level, make sure the grips are flat. You may have to adjust them forward or back a little bit if you have a, a body issue so that it, the angle works for you. But generally, if those grips are flat to the ground, that's where you start. And from there, we worry about everything else. When you say flat to the ground, are you talking about just where, you, where the hand grips are? The, no, that, just the grips. That portion of it needs to be level with the ground. Yeah, that's where you want to start. Okay, so what do we do next? Okay, next, where are the levers? Remember when you put your hands out in front of you, your hands are flat, your arms are straight. You want to put your hands on the grips and the levers should be just touching your fingers. Not, you don't want to bend your wrist up. You don't want to bend your wrist down to reach. It should be dead flat and level. That's the neutral zero position and that's where you always want to start. So once you've got that set, now I should, should mention that we're starting with the neutral position sitting. Standing is another thing that we'll talk about later. But for sitting, you want that neutral, comfortable position with your hands on, just touching the levers. If you want to adjust the levers in or out, always remember that if you pull them in, particularly for those who have small hands, the problem you can run into is when you pull in the clutch, if you can't pull it in all the way, or if you don't have a large range to pull it in, you may not be fully disengaged in the clutch. So when you change gears, you get a big bang. Or if you're stopped at a stoplight, the clutch is dragging and trying to pull the bike forward. That's going to cook your clutch. So you always want to have the clutch lever as far out as you can comfortably do. If, it's, if you have to pull it in in order to be able to pull the lever in, then pull it in. But always remember, don't have that clutch pulled in with it in gear any more than you absolutely have to because that's hard on the clutch. Okay, and what's the next thing we're going to adjust? Okay, we've got the levers adjusted. We've got them level. We've got them pulled in and out. What else is there? Well, there's your mirrors. I look at people's mirrors an awful lot, and I notice that they're at all sorts of funny angles, forward and back. Of course, you've adjusted the, the head so that you can see, but have you thought about, let's get those mirrors as wide as we can so we can see better, and also maybe even slightly forward, but certainly never back. Have you ever seen somebody walking around at a motorcycle event with both wrists in a cast? That's because he went over the handlebars and his mirrors were probably a little bit too far back, so his wrists got trapped. Not a nice thing to have happen. 
So we want to make sure that we've got as much room as we can to get our hands clear of the mirrors if we should crash. Keep that in mind. I always aim for having the mirror stocks straight across the bike and then adjust the mirrors as I, best I can. How do you mean straight across the bike? Um, perpendicular to the bike. <laughs> Is there any chance when we're getting into doing this, like, should anyone be worried about doing this, you know, worried about mixing something up or messing up the, the settings on it so they can never get it close to what it was even when it was stock? No, it's always easy to adjust. I think everybody will be quite amazed at just how easy it is to do. If you've never really done any wrenching on your bike, it's pretty obvious. All of this stuff is very simple. Loosen the clamp for the handlebar or loosen the clamp for the uh, levers and just rotate. Tighten it back up. There you go. It's not that complicated. Um, the handlebar clamps should be securely bolted. There is probably in your manual a torque for that, and it's always good to set the torque exactly right. Uh, keep the gaps on either side of the clamp equal. On some, you may find when you clamp the handlebar, one side is clearly clamped solid and tight, and the other has got a big gap. Make sure you maintain that because that's the way it's designed. Most of them, though, have equal gaps on either side. And it should be fairly obvious which you've got. Okay, are there any other adjustments we should be doing? In the cockpit area, that's the primary adjustments. We may want to adjust the positioning of a GPS. I like to get it up fairly high, not on the handlebar, so that when you're looking forwards, the GPS is in a line with your eyes. You don't have to nod your head in order to see it. I think that's very dangerous. Um, the angle of the windscreen, there's lots of things we can talk about with windscreens. Playing with them is a fine art. <laughs> it will, you'll never get it perfect, but you can get it pretty good. Well, let's just talk for a second about windscreens. I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to figuring out whether you should be behind the screen or above the screen. Can you talk about that? Sure. There's a few things to think about with screens. Number one, if the weather's bad and it's throwing up dirt and rocks and mud and whatever off-road or even on the street, if you've got lousy weather and it's throwing up lots of sand and dirt, you don't want to be looking through that windscreen. You do not have a windshield wiper. So you've got to be able to look over the windscreen at all times. I think a high windscreen is very dangerous, and I would never even consider riding with a high windscreen. You've got to be able to look over it so you can see. And if you get the angle right, the dirt and muck that's landing on the windscreen should then get thrown up over top of your helmet so that your visor stays relatively clear but the visor is so close to your face that even if it's covered with water you can still see through it just fine so just keep the worst of it off with the windscreen there's an airfoil that comes up from your screen as well what, what sort of i mean i guess it's going to depend on the height of the person of course and whatever you have for a windscreen but what's the ideal setting there the ideal setting is where the wind flows over the top of your head or you can often find that actually having the wind blow onto your helmet is okay so long as the air is smooth and that's where people often go wrong i see people adjusting their windscreens to be more vertical in order to keep the wind off them when in reality what happens is the more vertical it is the more barn door like it is which means that the air comes off that barn door very turbulent which means that you get a lot of turbulent air hitting you and your helmet and that's what you really don't want what you want is smooth airflow and try riding a bike without a windscreen at all, and the airflow is smooth. It's nice. There's no issue. Yes, there's a lot of wind, but it's smooth. You're not getting buffeted. You're not getting banged around, and it's not hard to ride that way. So a smooth airflow is the most important thing you're aiming for. So 
tilt your windscreen back very often makes it actually better because you're smoothing out the wind flow and you're making the air flow nice and smooth around you. And the air wash on the helmet, um, that's part of helping your helmet vent properly too, isn't it? Because you've got inlets and outlets that's supposed to have air pressure against it. Oh, yeah. If you don't have any air into your helmet, you're going to cook. And then what people end up doing is they ride with their windscreen open and then, or their, sorry, their face shield open. And that's when the bug misses the windscreen and comes straight through and gets you in the eye. Mm. So riding with your face shield open is a bad idea. So you want to make sure you've got enough airflow in your helmet that you've always got that cool, fresh breeze in. Now, are there any problems that arise from doing these adjustments or, or at least temporary problems that we have to look at? I mean, as you start to tilt your bars, maybe your hand guards go down, uh, contacting the windshield, that sort of thing? Generally, there's no issues as long as you don't using risers. I've always found that the stock motorcycle has enough extra cable length that you can adjust the handlebars around and it's not a problem. If you decide you need risers, then that's another whole issue. And that's where you can run into lots of trouble with cables being not long enough, and major rerouting of cables in order to make them work or buying new cables in order to fit. Now, talking about risers, that sort of takes us to the, the next section. Now, should we be looking at standing up here as well? Yeah, standing up requires different settings. The handlebar should not be adjusted. You still leave your handlebar in that neutral position. I see people... Uh, adjusting their handlebars, rolling them forward so that the grips are starting to point up in order to fit for standing up. But it's, it's a bad idea. You still want to be able to rotate your wrists on the grips without bending your wrists sideways. Just rotate your whole hand around the grip and stand up. But if you bend the, roll those handlebars forward, then you've got to bend your wrists in order to fit. And that's really, really bad. So keep those wrists straight, keep those handlebars level, and rotate the levers down a bit in order to work for standing up. But where you don't want to go is so far that they're great standing up, but when you sit, you can't reach them. And I see that on occasion. You have to be standing up or put your elbows a mile in the air in order to be able to reach your levers. Go for kind of a, an in-between position because as you're riding off-road, you will stand up, you'll sit down, you'll stand up, you'll sit down. You need to be able to reach the controls in all positions. So it's always going to be a bit of a compromise. It's never going to be perfect. Now, should you be adjusting this every time? I mean, you know, if you're only going and doing an off-road section, are you going to stop to make this adjustment? If I'm going to be off-road for five or ten minutes, no, forget it. It's not worth it. Uh, but if I'm going to be going off-road for the day, yes, I will make the adjustments for sure. What I always do is make sure that I've got the wrench that fits my levers in my tank bag or in my jacket pocket. I guess I've just got a little stubby. It's not very big. It doesn't weigh anything. And quick, click, click, rotate, tighten, done. Takes me 30 seconds. That's it. Okay, so now we're talking about standing and we've, we're adjusting levers. How do we know if we actually need to put in handlebar risers? That's a little tricky. And I find that too often people buy risers just because everybody doesn't want them. Risers exist. Of course you need them. You know, it's kind of those you go into the camping store and, ooh, I must need all this stuff. It's there. But you don't necessarily need it. Um, I'm six feet, and my current bike is an 07 1200 GSA. And the guy that owned it before me was six foot four. He had risers on it. And when I bought it, it felt like, wow, these, this is, these bars are really tall. And I went riding with it, and they felt, still felt really tall. Um, I pulled the risers out, and I'm running stock height, and it's just fine. Hmm. Not a problem. So it, it depends very much on how tall you are, how you ride, how you stand, um, whether your off-road focus is, well, I'm going down a gravel road, so I must need to stand. So you stand up, bolt upright, and lock your knees, and that doesn't work either. 
curious, is the point of standing is to allow your body to flex with the bike and with the bumps. Your, in other words, your knees become shock absorbers. And if you stand bolt upright and lock your knees, yeah, you can't reach the handlebar, so you must need risers. No, don't lock your knees. You want to be flexing your knees, moving up and down, changing position all the time. You may not need as much riser as you think if you bend your knees. So I think the trick is to find out, do I really need risers by riding off-road? And if you're riding off-road a lot and you're thinking about this, right, Grant said bend your knees, right? you got to bend your knees. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't work. So bend your knees, flex a little bit, squeeze with your knees, use the knees to do some of the work by squeezing in the, on the tank. And are you cricking your neck? Are you bending up and your neck's starting to get sore because you're bending forward and your knees aren't flexed enough? It's, it's a little tricky balance. And it's really hard for me to say you need it because you're six foot one and a quarter. Therefore, you need it. And you're six foot and zero. You don't need it. It's, it's everybody's a little bit different and every bike is a little different and the handlebars are different. So you have to work on thinking about do I need it because I'm being lazy and I want to stand bolt upright and reach out to my handlebars? Or am I being active and aggressive and riding with the bike and using my body to become one with the bike and flex and work with it? And then am I having neck troubles because I can't see? Then you might need handlebar risers. See, my thought process when it comes to doing modifications to my motorcycle is I always want to make sure that this modification is actually going to improve things rather than just being a bolt-on. Because generally, like unless it's repairing some inherent problem that's the design problem that, you know, everybody realizes needs to be corrected uh, with a particular machine. But generally, as you start to modify things, because everything is so engineered together, as you start to modify one thing, there's this chain effect or domino effect where it changes a bunch of things down the way. So I think that sort of goes along with what you're saying, doesn't it? You know, make sure you actually need them before you start bolting on a bunch of things. Yeah, and be fully prepared to say, well, that was a nice idea, but it didn't work and sell it on eBay. Somebody else does need them or somebody else would like to try it. A lot of times with modifications to a lot of things on bikes, in fact, I can say any modification is you have to look at it, think about it. Do I need this? Is it going to make it better or am I doing it because it's cool? Or let's, let's try it. Let's see if it works better. Is it better? And, re- and really be honest with yourself and don't get into this, I bought it, therefore I have to defend it and say it's wonderful even if it's crap. Um, be prepared to say, yep, that was an interesting experiment. I now know that doesn't work and get rid of it. Try something else. Now, are there any other adjustments to the cockpit area we should be talking about now? That's pretty much it. I think uh, once you've got those primary handlebar and bits hanging off the handlebars covered, that's the important part. From there, we get into seat and foot pegs and the rest of it, and that's a, another ball game. So this is a great time to go out and, and sit on your bike, do the adjustments that you've just talked about, and sort of get ready for the, the next segment. And I think probably your first setup is it's probably a good way to do it, isn't it, to break it up and, and concentrate on one area and then sort of move through to the next. Sure, get used to it. Uh, one of the things that I want to really strongly recommend to everybody is that when you've done these adjustments and you think you got it right, go for a ride, and your first reaction is going to be, this is weird. That's okay. Ride it for a few days. Put some miles on it. Get used to it. And then in about a week, you'll say, go put it back to the original setting, and you'll find, oh, that's pretty weird. Now I understand why it should be this way. Okay, well, that completes our first segment of our three-part series, Custom Fitting Your Bike to Your Body Size. Now, what can we expect to talk about next week? 
Next week, we're going to talk about where do I put my feet? Let's get those feet comfortably positioned. Thanks, Grant. Talk to you next week. Absolutely. See you then. And that was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited for part one of our three-part series called Custom Fitting Your Bike to Your Body Size, the three areas of your bike that you can and need to change to fit your body. Next week, Grant's going to walk us through setting up our foot controls to fit our feet and boot size. IMS Products is well known in the racing industry for producing quality products. In fact, I recently found out that almost every major off-road champion in the past two decades has used an IMS product. It's pretty neat. And apparently it's not just the U.S. either. Uh, IMS is known all over the world, and they've earned a solid reputation for supplying riders with quality fuel tanks and foot pegs and shifters since 1976. IMS makes a variety of foot pegs for us that um, bound to cover anything that you want as far as foot pegs. They've got quite a wide variety. They've got four sets of foot pegs for adventure riders. All of them are cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're certified heat treating and they're built in the USA. I'm riding on IMS pegs right now and the control difference I felt was immediate. I installed them, I got on the bike, I stood up, and immediately I could feel the difference. I had a better purchase, I had better leverage for control, and as far as quality goes, they guarantee all their pegs for life. Trip by their website, www.imsproducts.com, and when you contact them, drop our name, Adventure Rider Radio, so they know you heard them here. That's www.imsproducts.com. While we're on the subject of custom fitting our motorcycles, in particular the bars, levers, mirrors, etc., I was talking with Simon and Lisa Thomas some weeks back, um, Simon and Lisa Thomas from To Ride the World, and Simon mentioned they were riding with these new bars that he described as really nice, saying they made a huge difference in handling. So I had a look at them, and after checking them out online, we decided to get the company on here, on the show. The company is called Fast Company, and they have a rather unique style bar that they say is designed to absorb shock and vibration like nothing else. So here's Fast Company president. Cole Townsend. I'm from Fast Company Flex Handlebars. Cole, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Jim. So Fast Company, how did this get started? I actually started it in a marketing class my first semester of college. Uh, my brother was racing professionally motocross and supercross, and I wanted to travel with him. And I wasn't actually happy with a group assignment. I was assigned in a marketing class. So I just... Uh, I. I 86 the group and started doing this project on my own. And the teacher was a pretty rad lady and she just really encouraged me to pursue this. She didn't feel uh, college was cut out for me, which is pretty interesting from a professor. <laughs> and I'm just surrounded by self-employed people. My, my whole family self-employed. So being in business for myself was always interesting and in the back of my mind. But we, we were really heavily involved in motocross. Um, I had a lot of relationships with factory teams at that time and it just kind of evolved from there and uh, after a few years I brought my partner on who he's really the nuts and bolts of the operation he's keeping all the wheels greased and just keeping everything moving and uh, I do all the marketing branding product development and you said you've moved the company to southern Utah yeah we're in southern Utah now we were originally in southern California we got a great facility in southern Utah we can ride right out of our, our shop. We have amazing trails and riding. We have people come from all over the world to ride out of our shop. 
a lot of adventure riders stop by. We do a lot of ergo clinics with guys coming by, solving their problems, getting more comfortable. And they usually stop by on the way out of town and kind of on their way back west. So it's pretty cool to see the results. And um, yeah, we're just, we're blessed to be here. And and uh, we got great customers and great employees and we're just living the dream. A marketing class? Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> you got to be a poster child for them. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, uh, it's. Like, like the, the, your, your professor should be, you know, holding you up as an example and saying, see what I can do? Yeah, for sure. I, I took another couple of semesters with her um, just because I enjoyed her philosophy and just she was she was really real world oriented. And it was awesome. She encouraged me to do this. And we'd already kind of made some products in our garage that we were doing for factory Honda and Kawasaki at the time just because we had a mill and a lathe in our garage and we had those relationships and it was just uh, easy for us to do and stuff we wanted to run on our own bikes as well. So we'd build a couple extra and hand them out. And then, uh, it, it grew from there. We did originally our first primary product was our spoke torque wrench, which is still the leading torque wrench around the world. If, if you go to a factory mechanics toolbox anywhere in a motocross or supercross paddock, you're going to find our torque wrench. And that was our first release and a huge project and undertaking. And it's, it's, um, it's been cool to see that grow and, the relationships we've had with mechanics and riders and the championships have been won through using our wrench. I mean, be, just be having a little hand in that and growing up in the race environment, you're putting everything to the test every weekend. So it just gave us a great basis for R&D and structural integrity and knowing what will work and not work and how just little changes make such a difference. So we carry a lot of that philosophy over to the adventure market because it's it's so particular in making, helping a rider have a better day or not. Well, we're doing a three-part series on setting up your bike. And of course, one of the things, as you know, full well is, is handlebars. And we talked about replacing handlebars. Now you have a unique handlebar called the Flex Handlebar. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Flex Handlebar, there's three primary components. It articulates near the same plane as the suspension. So it's a real natural movement for your arms and hands. You don't notice it working when it's set up properly. You just notice the front end tracking really well, uh, dramatically less abuse, dramatically less vibration. The handles are completely isolated from touching metal to metal at any point through our compression and rebound elastomer as well as our, our uh, pivot bushings that are fiber bushing. The original goal was to absorb the catastrophic impacts, but in reality, the reduction of high-frequency abuse, which is what really fatigues you over the course of the day, as well as vibration is what it primarily does. And then obviously it comforts you on the catastrophic impacts as well. We spend a massive amount of time working on their characteristic. I want it to feel like a traditional handlebar. I mean, your control point, everything you do is, is how it feels and how you interpret what's happening. So I don't want to change that. I want you to have that traditional feel, but I want to absorb that vibration and abuse. So, so it's not fatiguing you, not pumping you up if you get arm pump. Um, if you have chronic injuries like carpal tunnel or tendonitis, it's just amazing the difference it does or range of motion limitations. But even for riders with, with no issues, it just in general smooths out the front end and helps you have a better day on the bike. You don't notice it. You just notice that you basically being able to ride longer, feel better, especially with adventure guys where you're riding such great distances back to back days. It helps you get back on the bike better. you you don't have that little tinge of of stiffness or just abuse that kind of wears you out over a long trip. 
This is a pretty unique looking bar too. It's not like the other ones I've seen on the market, you know, the, a single bar. This obviously has different components. You said it's basically three main pieces. The first piece bolts to the triple clamp and then the, the two handlebars that come off it are, are separate. And that's what you're talking about being isolated by the polymers. And then it, uh, I guess, has a slight pivoting effect. I mean, this is really neat in that uh, I can see the the potential for absorbing engine vibration, road vibration, and like you said, impact. But how is this different than one of the factory rubber-mounted handlebars? Yeah, the rubber-mounted clamps, I mean, they can knock down vibration a little, and they do. I mean, if you compare those back-to-back with, with a rigid mount. But because the handles are completely isolated, it just absorbs so much of the vibration or transmits it to a frequency that's not noticeable by your hand. Um, so that's one part of it from the vibration. But by absorbing all the high-frequency abuse, and on the adventure side of things, it's really overlooked how much road chop there is and just stutters and little things that, that happen throughout your ride that we just take for granted the, are there and can't be knocked out. But, man, it's so noticeable when you ride our bar back-to-back with a traditional bar and um, so even on the road, we make a significant impact and then obviously absorbing those catastrophic impacts. So you don't you have a huge amount of those on a traditional adventure ride. But, you know, if you hit a big G out or something, you don't expect something that can be, you know, can really basically make you pucker up. We absorb that and in basically make it a non-issue. And the, a lot of the benefits of the flex handlebars seen over over after using it a long period of time because it really changes your mental conditioning on what you expect to have happen when you when you hit things. Now, a lot of the factory insulated bars, they're, they're insulated right down at the triple clamp where they mount and they can sort of uh, flex in almost any direction, which can be, I mean, if you're really sensitive about your bike, it could be a bit of vagueness to your steering. Yours don't flex in every direction. No, we're... We articulate near the same plane as the suspension. So that's where we're, we're tied into. We have a rebound elastomer that basically doesn't allow you to pull up on the bar, but it does take that any harshness or metal to metal feel out from, from if you do pull up, but then absorbs, you know, downward for all the compression. Basically, our compression elastomer does the majority of the work. That goes back to the natural characteristic is I don't want to change how, how you control the bike or how it feels. It's rigid in the form of control, whereas your input is as effective as any other traditional rigid mounted bar, um, but we're absorbing that abuse and the compression and whatnot. A properly set up flex handlebar will absorb the abuse, but, but not in a manner that you'll ever notice except for a catastrophic impact where you're, you're really thankful for the, for the abuse reductions. Now, I see some, some nuts on here down where the absorption material is. Is this adjustable? Yes. Yep. By going in or out on the nut, if you go in, obviously you're going to stiffen it up. If you go out, you're going to make it more compliant initially. Um, that and that goes back to the elastomers. So not only do we have different elastomers, each elastomer is tunable on its own. So we have general settings that work really well, and then guys that really get into it might have a little different setting. But in general, most guys are riding a couple of different setups and really close. Um, you know, a huge thing I I neglected to go over initially is we really work on two fronts with flex handlebars. One, absorbing the abuse, and two, ergonomics. And that's a huge issue, obviously, with the venture bikes. We spend so much time on, on ergos and making sure that they're dialed into your preferences, your goals, and your needs. And um, when you reach out to us, which we love to hear from riders, I mean, we don't care where you get flex handlebars from, a dealer, from us, from a distributor, whoever – 
wherever you get it, we love to work with you and be sure you have the correct bend. If you need help afterwards, we're always here to service you. It's a huge brand tenant of ours, and we just we love to work with our riders. So on the ergonomic side, we really spend a lot of time, I and mean, we have a litany of questions if you call us or email us that we go through to be sure we get your, your bike dialed in for what you need and will best serve you. So it looks like you have five different elastomers that you can change out. Is that right? Yeah, there's actually six now, but yeah, four to five are applicable for most riders. The other ones get a little on the on the fringe for like a, a mini bike or something on those lines. Mm. But most adventure guys run our blue, which is our soft compression elastomer, our yellow, which is our medium rebound. It does a great job picking up a lot of the road shop. Great off-road. It, just in general, it, it works really, really well. Keeps the traditional feel of a bar. You don't notice it working. You just notice the front end tracking really well. Now, as far as ergonomics, you said it's adjustable, so you can actually adjust the angles? We can adjust the rise, but we make five different sweeps, three different heights, four different widths of bars. So between that, we can, one, meet basically any bar chart, but two, we've really chosen our dimensions to work best for the riders. Like for an adventure guy who needs a lot of handle room, we have an adventure bar that has a really narrow center with longer handles so you can mount everything you need to do. And we originally developed that specifically for a Teneri because the master cylinder was really, really close to the bar and and really minimized adjustability even on a traditional bar. So we looked at the limitations of that bike and designed something because we had a lot of interest from Teneri riders. But when we do an adventure application, we really break it down to what the limitations are as far as is one ergonomics and two the OEM components because we want to use all OEM components when when the rider mounts the bars and what the rider needs what he's requesting and what puts them in the best position possible. Uh, we always are looking to gain a more powerful body position and and more comfort for the riders. There's some bikes with great ergo stock and then there's some bikes with real limitations that that put the they either create some some pain over the course of the day or just put the put the rider in an adverse position and don't allow him to be as powerful as as you would like well on your website when you click on bar bends so to choose which bar you you want um you've got a bunch of listings here for 10 degrees a bunch for 12 degrees how do i know uh i think it might even go on beyond there oh yeah 14 degrees 15 degrees and 19 degrees yeah how do we know what to choose um, so in the description, oftentimes for the adventure oriented bars, we will put kind of what they're for, but we prefer just for the rider to, to call or email and then we'll discuss their background, their standing to sitting ratio, dirt to street ratio, range of motion limitations, like t- taking everything into account, what, what they feel currently with their setup and kind of direct them to the correct bar. But in general, most of our adventure guys are, are running either a 15 degree if they're a real dirt oriented rider or a 19 degree if they're a street oriented rider. And, and just through our questions, we, we delve down into to what will work best for you. What sort of characteristics do you find change from a 14, 15 degree bar, say down to a 10 degree bar? Like what, what happens there? The, the degree is the sweep back towards you. And if the height of the bar is correct, the sweep is the most critical dimension. So if, if, if the height's just even in the ballpark, the sweep is the most critical. So a uh, 10 degree is, is a, you know, obviously just basically a strictly dirt oriented bar and too straight for even a lot of dirt riders. It's very, very straight, basically the straightest bar out there, which, which gives you a lot of fore and aft room and really powerful positioning. But some guys just don't dig it that much. It kind of gives the, the bike like a mountain bike BMX style feel. 
You, you mean like you're leaning up, you have to sort of lean up over the bar? Is that sort of feeling? No, it just gives it like, it's very, the best way to describe it to me is like a BMX style bike feel where it's a really straight bar and it makes it almost, makes the bike turn really quickly because it is so straight and you're so forward. Mm, I see. Um, for the most part, adventure guys are running a 15 degree or 19. A lot of them will run a 14 if they're really dirt oriented. I have a KTM 950. I run a 14 degree bar on, whereas on my dirt bikes, I run 12 degree bar just because it's better on the road on the 12 degree. It felt like I was reaching a little, um, and just a little too open where the 14 was a nice compromise. It's still really great. Here he goes in the dirt and standing up, but super comfortable on the road as well. A lot of your listeners are familiar with your previous guest, Simon Thomas of to ride the world. So he's tall. He's really dirt oriented. Um, he's over the front. He's in attack position. He just, you know, he has a lot of experience. He's a really good rider. He runs a 12 degree bar, which works really, really good. Cause he's, he's mostly riding off road and, uh, put him in a great and powerful position. And, and even his wife, Lisa is running a 12 degree bar, but we were running a little narrower for her just to tailor the ear goes to her size and, and not open her up too much. So, um, there's a lot of customers that really love that that would like to run that 12 degree. Sometimes it's applicable for them. Sometimes it's not. Most adventure guys, just the 15 works really well for. So if somebody wants to buy one, the best thing to do is go by your website. You have a look at what you've got there and then make contact with you and sort of do a consultation, say, this is what I ride. What do I need? For sure. Email, call, however the customer prefers to reach out. We're happy to work with them. Go to our website, check out what we have. I saw that you recently, you interviewed Chris from Rocks and we're big proponents of rocks and getting the bar height right. And we work with a couple of different brands to be sure that we have ergo packages that work for you. Um, we build a lot of specific components. So it makes mounting the flex handlebar easy with all your OEM controls. Like for BMWs, different bikes, we have different some different mounting hardware to make it really easy. And then we design handguards specifically to work with flex handlebars in whatever your OEM application is. So we take all the specifics into account. So it's an easy bolt on. Cole, thanks very much. Okay, Jim, I appreciate the call. And that was Cole Townsend, president of Fast Company from Washington, Utah. And you can find out more about the bars we've been talking about by looking at their website at www.fastco.com. And that's fast with two S's in it. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Well, if you're suffering the winter blues and your trusty steed is a KLR, why not give it a facelift? Obsessive Cycle Disorder has a new fairing out for your 1987 to 2007 Kawasaki KLR650. You now have the option of making a great bike even better with the RF1 Rally fairing. Sam Spitz, owner of Obsessive Cycle Disorder, originally designed this fairing for his own bike, and only after he was done did he realize that he had something that many KLR's owners would want. And then the RF1 Rally was born. Now, you already know how good your KLR is, but you probably also know how bad the stock fairing or headlight cowl is. I know from experience. So you owe it to yourself to have a look at what Sam has done. He's got a great looking piece there. And Sam says it's an easy installation using all your stock hardware, lights, and no modifications. Believe me, if I had my KLR right now, I would be trying one. And he makes them right in his shop in the USA. So visit klrfairings.com. That's www.klrfairings.com. And of course, that link is in the show notes. And of course, when you're talking to Sam, let him know you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. 
Coming up next, we have a woman who I'll call L. Due to my inability to pronounce the way it should be, it should sound like this. So Elle is a traveler and a fairly new motorcycle rider. But the reason we have her on today is to talk about her new digital magazine called Women ADV Riders Magazine. Elle is currently traveling the world by motorcycle with her boyfriend and has no end destination or even a time frame for that matter. I spoke with Elle from an apartment she is renting for a few months while in Greece. Um, hi, my name is Agla Gerulitita. I'm from Lithuania and I'm a journalist um, who happens to be traveling around the world on a motorcycle. Elle, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, thanks. Now, you have started um, what you're calling an online magazine called Women ADV Riders, and I want to talk to you about that. But first, tell us who is Elle? <laughs> right. Um, well, like I said, I'm, I'm a journalist, um, and uh, motorcycles are a pretty recent thing in my life. Um, I mean, I only started um, riding in 2013, so only a few years back. And uh, so it's still it's still all very new and, and it's all very recent. So I'm still kind of finding my way around. Um, but uh, but yeah, traveling on bikes is a uh, is pretty awesome. Let's just say, and uh, I kind of want to keep doing that for well forever. What are you doing right now? You you are traveling around the world, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but we're traveling very slow. Uh, by we, I mean me and my boyfriend. And, um, you know, if, if we would like a place, we'll stay there. Um, like we're in Greece now for two months. Um, if we don't, we'll leave. There's no, you know, there's no schedule. There's no plan. There's no, you know, we don't have to be anywhere. We don't have to come back anywhere, really. So it's just, you know, taking it as it, as it is and uh, and just, just traveling. That's all. As you mentioned, you have not always been into motorcycling. How did you stumble onto the motorcycle? Um, I was backpacking in Peru, and uh, I just I just met loads of people. I kind of, I don't know why, but I just kept noticing bikers, and uh, and I thought they looked pretty cool. And I talked to a couple of them, and it just sounded really really great. So um, so I decided that I wanted a bike as well. And uh, I asked. I was in Nazca in this little teeny tiny town in Peru, and uh, and there was this American guy traveling on. Uh, I don't remember what make the bike was. It was something small, two fifty cc dirt bike uh, type of thing and I asked him if he could teach me to ride a little bit and uh, he did so uh, so then <laughs> I bought a bike the next day and uh, it left and I kind of planned to just ride around Peru a little bit but I ended up riding um, across the whole continent of South America and then by the time I got to Colombia I realized that this was just too good so I decided that that's what I was going to do now. How do you get a license? Oh, um... <laughs> Yeah, about that. Well, uh, it turns out that they're not really that bothered in South America. I mean, I'm I'm from Lithuania, which is, you know, most people in, in, in Peru, in Chile, in Argentina, when they when they saw my passport, they'd be like, what? You're from where? And uh, I had my car driver's license, so that kind of worked. So that was it. I got my motorcycle license in 2015 when I got back home. Well, this made you fall in love with the bike. You rode your bike around a lot. You've got an interesting story about um, being in Argentina and having a breakdown. Uh, yeah, somewhere in Argentina, and uh, again, this you know, I didn't know anything about. I don't know anything about bikes today as well, because um, I'm just, I don't understand how they work, and and 
but back then I had even less knowledge, let's just say. So, yeah, so I was just riding um, riding along, and um, it was raining all day long, and the bike felt a little funny, like the rear wheel was a bit, was a bit wobbly, something like that. And uh, at some point I just kind of lost power, and I tried lower gear and lower gear, and nothing worked. And eventually I just stopped the side of the road, and I decided, okay, so gears are not working, so it must be the gearbox. And I was absolutely convinced that that was the case. But at this point, you were saying the weather was really crappy. You're sitting on the bike. Yeah, you sort of don't bother getting yeah. off. Just sat on the bike feeling sorry for myself, not knowing what to do. And then all of a sudden, these Argentinian guys come come along. Um, they're all bikers with three bikes. And they approach me and say, so what, what's happened? And, and I'm trying to explain to them in my very broken Spanish because I, I don't speak. I mean, my Spanish isn't great. Um, I'm trying to explain to them, oh, my gearbox broke, I don't know what to do, and things like that. And they're just looking at me funny, like, are you, what, what are you talking about? And then it turned out that it was my chain, it fell off, so. <laughs> and and that shows, you know, this, it's another another point that you don't need to know a lot about bikes to actually go out and have an adventure. You just got to be able to sort of take it as it comes. Absolutely. I don't think you need any special skills or any experience or any special knowledge or anything really i mean it's it's really not a huge deal at all you know i mean i was a backpacker first and a hitchhiker before that and for some reason in the you know hitchhikers or backpackers or people who cycle around the world or, or walk around the world they don't really make a big deal out of it you're just traveling that's all you're doing but for some reason in the motorcycling community suddenly it's a huge deal and suddenly bikers are these you know special people and there's this whole you know, we have celebrities and authors and, you know, it's, it's a bit strange to me, to be honest. And the crazy thing is, is that, you know, you're riding around, as you said, you know nothing about the mechanics of bikes. Each time you had a breakdown, you managed to have people come by that knew something about them could help you out. Absolutely. And I mean, um, you try to give back as well. I mean, I would always stop to ask if other people were okay. Even sometimes it's, it's kind of obvious that they just, you know, stop to have a cigarette or whatever, but you will still stop and, and offer them water or, or, or something. It's, uh, you know, you just help each other out. Um, that's for sure. But again, yeah, you don't, you, <laughs> it's nothing, it's nothing special. You don't have to be a specialist. You don't have to, you're just riding around. That's all. And as you mentioned, you had been backpacking, you've been, you know, you, you were a traveler before you stumbled across a motorcycle, you stumbled across it as a traveler. So you have a fair bit of travel experience. And you even had a, a story about running out of money and um, finding out that wasn't really a big deal. Can you tell us that? Um, yeah, that was in Argentina as well. I was riding, um, I got to Ushuaia and then I realized that I shouldn't have come because I, I got the timing wrong. It was September, October, something like that. So it was still snowing and I couldn't ride my bike in snow at all. And it was just horrible. And I just wanted to get out of there. And then somehow I thought I still had a little bit of money left in my bank account. And then I realized that, that wasn't the case at all. I had 10 pesos left and I was in the middle of Tierra del Fuego in this little town. And that was kind of it. So, um, but I didn't panic. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> This one time, um, I was hitchhiking to a music festival in Spain was I was when I was 18, and uh, I lost my friend somehow, and uh, I found myself alone in Galicia with three euros, and I called my dad, and you know, kind of sheepishly told him, "Dad, I'm in Spain. I've only got three euros," kind of hoping that he will help me out, and he just said, "Oh, really?" and hung up on me. <laughs> so I had to just find my way back home. <laughs> now, hang on. Is, uh, is that a is that a, a parenting skill that he's using there? Well, that was his parenting skill anyway. So That was trying to so, teach yeah. you something? 
Yeah, and it worked because when I ran out of money in Argentina, I just realized, well, okay, so that happened. So now I have to deal with it. And I did. I, I, I found a job um, training horses there. And it was just a crazy coincidence because, you know, I talked to a guest, um, gas station attendant who turned out to be a firefighter who knew somebody who knew somebody. I mean, you know, in South America, everybody knows everybody. And he called someone who knew someone. And within two hours, I had a job. Um, food and lodging. So, again, it's just you know you, you figure things out as you go. It's 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 all doable. So, what's the key to that? What you know that you've learned through traveling, through finding times where you're stuck and you need help. What's the key? What would you pass on to someone who hasn't learned that lesson yet? Just have confidence in yourself because everything is possible. Everything is doable. And it's, I mean, right now I'm I'm pretty much homeless, right? And this is my life now on the road. And it's just, it's just normal life. You know, you just deal with things as, as they come. So it's just, you know, same principle. You just carry on and figure things out as, as they go. It's, and yeah, I think the main, the main thing is just trust yourself and have confidence in yourself rather than try to emulate someone, you know, the, you, you saw online or something like that. So you've started a website now, and let's talk about that, womenadvriders.com. You've started this website being fairly new. As you said, you just started riding. What made you decide to start this? Uh, well, like I said, I'm a journalist. Um, and uh, I, you know, in South America, I just rode my bike around. I didn't even realize that there was such a thing as ADV riding scene. I didn't realize that you had to have a certain bike and certain gear, and uh, I didn't realize that there were even, you know, magazines out there for adventure riders, right? And only when I got back to Europe, I realized that, oh, okay, so this is there as well. And I started, you know, um, I found the Horizons Unlimited Forum, ADD Rider, all of that, and I realized this, oh, there's magazines out there as well, but the main kind of narrative in those magazines is this, you know, middle-aged guy on a big BMW bike riding around the world in, in, in very expensive gear. And it's just not something that I can relate to. Um, and uh, although you could from time to time maybe spot an interview or an, or an article about a woman doing the same thing, it's, it's pretty rare still. So I decided, now hold on a minute, I think we need our own magazine. And so I started the Women ADV Writers Project, which has taken off now. And uh, and it's going great, really. And I keep finding these women all over the world doing the most incredible things. And it's just really inspiring. That And again, the message is the same. Anybody can do this. And um, so it just kind of came together, that message and the fact that I kind of missed seeing females out there. What is on this women's ADV riders? Um, well, most uh, the most I think attractive feature anyway is those you know those big stories the the, the travel inspiration let's say, um, for example, a woman who left Iran when she was seventeen years old, um, she left Iran to study and now she's traveling the world um, she's traveling around the world on a motorcycle and that's just you know against all odds, she's still doing that. Or um, Linda Beck, who's been traveling for 50 years now, and she's, you know, she crossed, um, she she rode her DR650 from Germany to Australia when she was 65. That is just really incredible. Um, so for me, it's it's first of all about, about travel inspiration. And then we do try to have um, discussions of what it means to be, um, you know, the reality of female solo travel, for example, 
um, and uh, and also just offer advice on 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 you know all sorts of things from bike mechanics to packing tips and, and things like that. So as far as a format goes, um, is it coming out on a, on a monthly basis, at a weekly basis, or how does that work? Yeah, we're still figuring this out. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's not a magazine, I guess, in the traditional sense, because we're putting out articles every two, three days, or sometimes even more often. Um, so it's more like a news portal, except it's, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's, I don't know, we're still working on that. I mean, it's only a month old, and there's only four people working on it, so... I think it's too early to say where it's all headed, but for now, everybody's just having loads of fun. We're super excited to be meeting all these women, and again, you know, from all over the world, not just Europe or, or North America or Australia, um, and uh, we're just hoping to inspire more women to ride and, and, and to maybe document their travels a little bit more and to show that, you know, again, everybody can do this. Do you have plans for it down the road? Do you have, you know, a grand vision? Not really. Um, I think one of the greatest things of being on the road is that this vision can change, and it's totally fine. I mean, when uh, when I started, because when I came back from South America, I, I, I got back to what I call what I now call the Matrix, basically, and I, I got a you know a regular job, and I was absolutely miserable in it. Um, so I only started traveling again uh, this summer. And at first, I kind of went down the pretty much the same road as everybody seems to nowadays. I started my own blog, and then I realized, but you know, it's not about me at all, and I'm not exactly much different in any way from others. And I started talking more to to the local people that I met. For example, here in Crete, um, I came upon this really interesting tradition of shepherds. Uh, you know, they're pretty much vanished from from Europe, and here it's the tradition is still very much alive. So. I'm writing an article about them, and now it's just becoming about other people's stories or stories from the local people, and just completely shifting the the whole, you know, shifting the focus. So I don't have a grand vision at all, and you know, on the road anything can happen, and you just gotta be flexible and create different things. I mean, I, uh, yeah. And you're on the road, as you said. You're sort of on an open-ended trip. You're you're just traveling around the world with no sort of uh, specific destination, I guess, or no no final point where you're going to call it quits. I guess that'll just happen when it happens. And you're doing this at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have to somehow, you know, make my make my make my living. So <laughs> um, no, but uh, mostly I, I just freelance for the magazines, and I'm writing a book now as well. Um, so my publishing is my publisher is paying me a little bit, so that helps. Um, but women ADB writers, that's just a completely volunteering type of project. So. Now you said you're a journalist. Did you go to school for that? Are you a trained journalist? No, I actually studied philosophy, and then I quit, and then I became a horse whisperer. That's a long story. <laughs> uh, but I did work uh, as a journalist back home uh, for four years in, in national newspapers, so that kind of helps. On Women ADV Riders Magazine, you're running a video contest. Can you tell us about that? Again, that's just one more tool to showcase um, female adventurers. Uh, we just want to get as many submissions as we can, and maybe we'll just mix it up and make one big, you know, Women ADV Riders movie, or or just, uh, or maybe we'll just showcase them separately. But again, it's just one more sort of a call to action um, to, to get those women out of hiding and, and show their, you know, show their adventures off. What's the criteria for it? 
Um, we'll let the public decide. We will, you know, the, the, the only criteria is that the video has to be under three minutes. But other than that, um, anything goes really. And eventually we'll just, um, after the deadline, we'll just um, upload them to our video uh, YouTube video channel and let the public decide. So the video that gets the most likes wins. So. And what's the deadline for that? That would be February the 15th. February the 15th. So coming up very soon. Well, it certainly sounds like you're having fun. It looks like a great project you've started there and wish you all the best. Elle, thank you very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and talking about it. Thank you. I've been speaking with Agla Gelalotuita. I hope I've got that right or even close. And uh, she was in an apartment that she's renting in Greece. She's currently traveling the world with her boyfriend. Drop by the website and see what she's doing at www.womenadvriders.com. The Good Adventure Company, headed up by J.J. Lewis, says they have a a singular goal, to make the world a better place to live and ride. And to do that, they raise funds for sustainable organizations. And right now they're doing some great work in Batopilis by supporting the local school with thousands of dollars to help improve their living and learning environment for the kids at the school. So they sell products on their website and they use those profits for it as well. They do some guided trips and they use the profits from that to help these sustainable organizations. So coming up, the Good Adventure Company has a trip running into the Copper Canyon. You might have heard us talk about this uh, a couple of other times in earlier episodes. Now, I spoke with JJ the other day and he tells me they only have three spaces left for this adventure that's running March 4th to 11th, 2017. So the trip is called Mexico's Copper Canyon Epic Adventure. And you can see the details on their website. It's uh, www.good-adv.com. JJ and his helpers have been working hard at this. And they've, been, they've uh, set it up so they're staying at top-notch accommodations. This is a fully guided trip that they're doing. But the trip is a real adventure, too. And I don't know if you heard the, the last interview we did with one of the guides for this trip. It's, um, it's not a hand-holding adventure. You've got to have a certain level of skill and experience to come along. And the best way to find out is to contact them through the website first. And then they'll talk about your experience and see if you're going to fit in the trip. But it's a real adventure. You know, and and on these last three spaces, um, each rider is going to get 10% off. So that's going to be some savings for you. They've run the trip before. And from what I've been told, it was incredible. The riders said that, that it was the time of their life, like a real ride of their life sort of thing. So if you have some time and you want a real adventure with a group of like-minded riders, move quick, give them a call or an email before these three spaces are gone. And I've said this before, but... I think it's a great opportunity to go out, be a part of this adventure, enjoy an incredible time, and know that the the profits or, or some of your money is going to help people that really need a helping hand. And honestly, I think this is the best way to do tourism, really. It's giving back to the people that are in need in these areas that that people want to visit. Because quite often, you know, people rush through areas like this and they don't really do anything for them. They enjoy the spaces, um, but they'd actually give anything back. And that's what the Good Adventure Company is all about. That's what it's set up for, is for giving back, making the world a better place to live and ride, right? So 
oh, now I, I forgot to mention that you'll actually be stopping at the school that you're helping by being a part of this trip. And JJ has connections with all the locals because of this, because of the charity work. And the locals know what the Good Adventure Company is up to. So they get access to special areas. They get treated in special ways that you just otherwise wouldn't get. So drop by their website, www.good-adv.com and get signed up for what may well be the trip of a lifetime. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Remember, you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can download all these episodes for free. And don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw, another one you can subscribe to. Again, free. Just go to the website, click on it, or actually anywhere where you listen to podcasts, almost all the places you listen to podcasts, you can find uh, both of these shows and you can just download them, listen to any of them that you want or all of them. I encourage you. On our website, we've got a a search button on there. So if you're interested in certain topics, particular things we've covered, we've got a a lot of shows now, a lot of hours of shows in there to go through. Help yourself. Enjoy. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, we've built this on a model of some advertising and some donations. So if you can, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you, our way of saying thank you. And we got some cool stickers. I know I've been saying it for a while, but I really like them. I like this new sticker. I like the new logo. Anyway... Anything of $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show right at the start of it. So that's pretty cool, too. Anyway, I want to thank you very much. Really appreciate having you listen to this show. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week.
My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.